0: Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, and he carries them away, even the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he brings them over, uh, over the river unto his day. And then we see in the days of, uh, and I'm going to butcher the names of all these kings, but let's say Pekah, and Bill can correct me how the right pronunciation of this ought to be, uh, but he comes in with the king of Assyria, and he takes over all these guys, and pretty much what they're saying is, they take over the land of the um, uh, Northern Kingdom and they start to carry all these guys captive back to the Assyrian Empire. Uh, so we kind of go here, we, we call this, you know, the Lost Tribes of Israel. By 722 BC, uh, after about 10 to 20 years after all these deportations had happened, uh, the final, final battle occurs uh, where where the Northern Kingdom is really no more. And we see that it says the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to the king of Egypt and he had brought no present, no, no kind of, you know, paying his taxes almost to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria had enough and he shut him up. He bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land, went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and the harbor by the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. I want you to pay attention to the Medes. The Medes are going to come up a lot. Uh, and and we want to read why this occurred, right? It says, the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria uh, and, and because they had obeyed, the, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but they transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded and would not hear them, nor do them. So we just see this lack of obedience over and over and over, this this upright rejection of the God of Israel from the kings of Israel and then in turn with the people of Israel. And we see these tribes lost to all of history. And so if you... Take, if you take then, now that you've got this northern kingdom completely lost, you know, to the Assyrian Empire, you now have this little kingdom of Judah that's standing on its own. And, and, and honestly, it's just a sitting duck, an absolute sitting duck waiting to be taken over. This is one of those things, if you hear Terry teach, Terry always says this, he goes, you know, the Jewish people should have been no more uh, at this point in time. Uh, they should have been completely overrun. They should have been taken away and scattered into the empire so that, uh, you know, the people couldn't kind of regain any type of stronghold and rebel against the Assyrians. You know, the Jewish people should have been gone. We should have never been able to read about their history. Uh, it should have been the end of it. And so we see this kind of climax uh, of of this encroachment from the Assyrians as they take over town after village after village that makes up this area of Judah, they just keep taking village after village. And then we find them on the gates uh, of, of Jerusalem under the king, under the leadership of Hezekiah. And this red circle up here, the prophet that is speaking to Hezekiah at the time is the prophet Isaiah. And that's a story we've covered a few times. If you remember the Rapshaka, from the Assyrians coming over and yelling up to the people on the gates of Jerusalem trying to get them to surrender let them know that their God is not as strong as the king of Assyria uh, he lies to them and says that it is actually their God who sent them and uh, pretty much saying if you don't give up right now everybody's gonna be slaughtered why would you do that to yourselves and Hezekiah goes back to Isaiah they inquire to the Lord uh, God says these people will be delivered you know i will protect you and they look up and you know there's 196 or 185,000 soldiers of the assyrians struck down um uh, that day you know the following day so so we see this incredible story of hezekiah and isaiah and what god does to protect the little kingdom of judah from this massive assyrian empire and if you know anything about the assyrians i want to make sure it's in your head The Assyrians are brutal, absolutely brutal people. When you would go to Nineveh and you would walk the halls of the palace of Nineveh, you would see flayed bodies out, right? You would see these bones that you would see. It would be such an intimidating presence because they wanted any foreign dignitary who came through to know that if you cross them, this is what's going to happen to you. So the fact that they were not able to capture Judah is one of these things where it's a great confidence for all of us that God is more powerful than any nation, right? And and his will will be done. And so what I wanted to do is I want to kind of walk through what is happening from the King Hezekiah up into around this time just prior to the Babylonian captivity. Because a lot of stuff happens, and it sets the stage for this guy named Habakkuk, who's going to be prophesying right around this time uh, for us to understand what it is he's talking about, right? What it is he's, what's going on. So let me go to the uh, next section here. We're going to talk about this King Hezekiah for just a bit. And so I told you the story of, of the just miraculous event where the Assyrians weren't able to overtake Jerusalem. Um, but Hezekiah, if you look right here, He's got a thumb up that's kind of pointing over to the right. And if you look at the legend on this, on this deal, a thumb up pointing over to the right says, hey, he was a really good king. He did a lot of really great things, but he made one pretty critical mistake. And Hezekiah makes a very critical mistake. And this is a painting of the mistake that occurs. So if you go to your Bibles, I want you to, you know, there in 2 Kings chapter 20, I want you to turn to verse 16 of chapter 20. And I will, uh, i give you just a second and I'll read that. So it says this, it says, Then Isaiah, the prophet, said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away. And they, they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? What happens here, what, what Isaiah and Hezekiah are talking about, is the event that would have occurred just before this. Hezekiah, at, at, at the very end of his life, gets a bit proud of everything he has, a bit proud of of all the things God's entrusted to him, the riches of the palace, the, the gold, the silver, everything that has you know had been had come through David and Solomon and on down through the line of Judah. And the and these Babylonians, who were not the major player at the time, remember the, the major power in this area at the time were the Assyrians. Uh, but at this time, these Babylonian envoys uh, who had been a little further south than the Assyrians come to meet with Hezekiah. And out of pride, Hezekiah starts showing them all around the storehouses of the temple. He shows them all these just beautiful, incredible things um, out of pride. And so, you know, God knows the condition of his heart. And so there's this prophecy from Isaiah that you're going to fall, right? Your people are going to fall. You know, there's consequences to this. And this kind of sets the seed for one of the first signs we see of this rising Babylonian power that will come and God will use at some point in time. Now, Hezekiah, though, was a good king. There were all kinds of great things that happened in the time of Hezekiah. Uh, but after Hezekiah, we get this guy named Manasseh. Who's got the thumbs down? Right, thumbs down, all the way down. Manasseh, Manassa's is a bad, bad king, and uh, this is a this is a painting of Manasseh. And always, all these paintings are well after the fact, needless to say. And and uh, the white people in Europe who did lots of paintings tend to paint everyone in the Middle East as white. So you just have to kind of you know be ready for that. But um, so you look at this this painting and. This is a a view of Manasseh reinstating pagan worship uh, in the kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah had done so much to get the people to become obedient to God. Uh, You had seen these great, great things happen under his reign. And Manasseh does away with all of it. And he just, he walks away from God in a way that had never been seen before. So I want to read a little bit about Manasseh because we need to understand this guy to understand why what's happening to Habakkuk happens. So if we go to chapter 21 of 2 Kings, let me read this to you real quick. Uh, Chapter 21, verse one says this, Manasseh, who had been the son of Hezekiah, was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So he reigned a long time. It says, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places where idol worship would be called. He erected the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah as Ahab, the king of Israel. So Ahab, think Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and that whole story. So as Ahab, the king of Israel, had done, and he worshiped all the hosts of heaven, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah, he set in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever." And then down in verse nine, it says Manasseh led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So if you just pause for a minute, I want you to to get a glimpse of just how wicked Manasseh was. I mean, we are not far removed from God saving the people of Judah in such a miraculous way that the historians have a hard time understanding it, right? Uh, We're not far removed from that event. With Hezekiah and as soon as Manasseh comes he he not only brings in Baal he brings in almost all the gods of the ancient Near East uh, we see him burn his son in an offering uh, which is which is a, a um, symbol that there was some worship of, of Shamash and we, we see just every single thing that God has told his people over and over again do not do do not go worship idols do not have any gods before me Manasseh does it all, and he leads the people completely astray. Now, if I'm God, I'm not going to have much patience for that. And and you know, a lot of people read the Old Testament and they think, "Geez, God seems really angry." Well, I mean, there's a couple thousand years of people doing this crap, right? I mean, over and over again, just just rejecting God. Uh, I think God was much more patient than any of us would ever be uh, with all this. His mercy is shown clearly. Through how many prophets he sent to get the people to repent, or how many warnings he provided, the loving warnings God provided the people. Uh, but here with Manasseh, there in verse 10, we see this from God. It says, And the Lord said by his servant the prophets. So God is sending the prophets uh, to talk, to, to explain this to the people. He says, But because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations, and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And you go down there a little bit in verse 13, it says, I'm going to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Says, I'm going to give them into the hand of their enemies. And in verse 15, it says, Because they have done what is evil in my sight, and it provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt to this day. So Manasseh really sows the seed of judgment for the people of Judah. Right? He he what what had happened there with Manasseh just, I mean, we, we see this stern warning from God. And we know from all our studies, we've talked about this a lot, God is a God who does not break his promises or his commitments. And uh, we're going to see this promise get fulfilled. And it's not just the really nice fuzzy things that God keeps his promises on. He keeps his promises on the fact that he will judge the sin of his people. And so after Manasseh dies, he's kind of set the record for all-time worst king of Judah at this point in time. Uh, His son, uh, uh, Amon, or Amon, Amon, I'll say, uh, reigns after him. And we get a nice little thumbs down for this guy as well. And if you you go over to verse 19 of chapter 21, it says that he was 22 years old when he began to reign, and that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. And in verse 23, it says, and the servants of Ammon conspired against him and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all of those who had conspired against the king, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. So you see this mutiny occur with Ammon, and then the mutiny, the mutineers are then killed by all lots of other people who said, you shouldn't have had that mutiny. And so that is how we get this boy king named Josiah to begin to reign. And remember, God had promised that the line of David would one day bring the Messiah. And so it's very important that we see this line not interrupted all the way to the Messiah. So we see uh, this come through. So all the same color, all coming from the same line of David. Uh, But we're gonna get to this king named Josiah, and some interesting things happen with Josiah. We see a thumbs up pointing this direction, which means this dude pretty much did everything right. So Josiah, uh, one of the most famous things we learn uh, about Josiah is that um, he finds, or or through the work that they were doing, uh, Hilkiah finds the book of the law and brings it to Josiah. And the book of the law is read to Josiah. And Josiah just mourns as he reads the book of the law, realizing what massive disobedience had had been going on in their people. And and he read the consequences that God had promised would happen if you turned away from God. And he was just so um, mournful about just what was going to happen. So if you read there in, in chapter twenty-two, verse one, it says, you know, Josiah is eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty-one years in Jerusalem. Uh, and it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. If you keep reading through this book, you're gonna see the repairs to the temple that are made, which is what happens to have them find the book of the law. Um, and you're gonna see Josiah when they find it, he just humbles himself before God. He tears down all the idols. He, 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 he gets the people to repent. They go and they make this covenant and they're pleading for God for mercy. Uh, and, and, and truly humbling themselves before God. And in verse 19 of chapter 22, God responds to Josiah's worship. And God says this. He says, Because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes, meaning you you have grieved, you, you are mourning, right? And you have wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. And he says, therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back this word to the king. So, What's happening here, right, is God is saying, you've humbled yourself before me, and I'm going to show you mercy. And the way I'm going to show you mercy is this this thing I'm going to do, right, this judgment I'm going to bring upon Judah, which is going to be awful, right, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, right? You're going to be gathered to your fathers. You're going to die in peace. You've been a humble servant. I'm not going to stop what I have said has to happen to judge these sins, but... It's going to happen after your time. And in verse 23 uh, or chapter 23 verse 25, uh, it's talking about Josiah towards the end of his reign, towards the end of his life. It says, "Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all that the law of Moses, nor did any anyone like him arise after him. But still the Lord did not turn from his burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. So we see, um, we see you know, Josiah is not going to be able to get the people completely out of this, but we do see God's mercy at work. Well, the other thing that's happening here in uh, this time of history is the Assyrians have been in power for a long, long time, and they have a pretty sprawling empire at this point in time. And they're holding, they're holding regions from far away. like We saw how they're holding the Egyptians, how they have held the Babylonians, uh, the Chaldeans, uh, the Medes. You know, they're holding lots of diverse people groups, and like every single empire in history, you know, that becomes very taxing. As uh, you have rebellions and you're having to finance wars all around your region, as you're having to move resources back and forth, that becomes harder and harder to hold on to. Uh, we see that in, 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 in our history books all over the place. We see it with the British Empire, with the Roman Empire. You know, you, you can, any major empire in history, normally their demise is very similar to the end. They've gotten so big, they fought so many wars, they run out of money, their people rebel, and they can't hold it all together. And eventually, someone has enough power to challenge them. And that's what's starting to happen at this time. The Babylonians, the people in that area, the region of Babylonian, Babylon, Babylon, think modern-day Saudi Arabia, Baghdad area, people in that area um, are are starting to rebel against the Assyrians. And so the Assyrian empire is starting to crack. Um, The Chaldeans, you know, from that same area of Babylon and the Babylonians uh, decide to join together and they come back together to take the city of Babylon. So like I say close to current day city Baghdad, right? They, They come together to take back the city of Babylon. Nahum is a prophet who prophesies the fall of the Assyrians. And, ha- and the, the, this, um, the fall is gonna occur right towards the end of Josiah's life. There's this 12 year struggle um, where the Chaldeans, the, 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 the Babylonians and the Medes join forces and attack the Assyrians. And we see this massive battle of Nineveh, right? The capital city of, of the Assyrian empire this massive battle occur uh, where the Assyrians are defeated in Nineveh. And I want you to look at this picture um, because I don't think we talk about the Assyrians enough in our history books. The Assyrians had a magnificent empire. Their structures were so vast. Uh, Nineveh was the most incredible city uh, at that time. And, you know, we know a lot about Rome and, um, uh, ancient Greece, we we know a lot about that, uh, but the Assyrians were way ahead of everybody. When, if you ever read the book The Histories by Herodotus, uh, Herodotus was one of the first ever historians in the world. Uh, he really traces the history of the rise of the Greeks and the battle with the Persians um, and all of that, and he goes back to the Assyrian Empire to really help explain it. And he said that the Greeks at the time would go and, um, and would come across these ruins in Nineveh and they had no idea what empire had been there. They, they, you know, they had no complete understanding of the history of the Assyrians because like most of history, the victor gets to write the history books. So we know a whole lot more about Babylon than we did the Assyrians at the time. Luckily, we've had a lot of historians for a long time now who've who've been able to uncover all this information about the Assyrians, but they were a mighty empire. And so you get this coalition of different people groups who rise up, join together, uh, and take on uh, the Assyrians. And I want you to see the Medes right here. The Medes are like... um, The Medes are like the Kevin Durant of the ancient Near East, right? The Medes are, you know, they they will jump on the team of whoever is winning at the time. And they always seem to be that group who is able to just tip another empire over the edge. Uh, So the Medes here uh, join together with the Babylonians to defeat the Assyrians. We're going to see later in history that the Medes are going to join together with the Persians to defeat the Babylonians. Uh, so you, you see that a lot play out, but so Nineveh falls and the Assyrian Empire after the fall of Nineveh, Nineveh is really just crippled. Um, they, they've lost their stronghold, they've lost a lot of their might, and uh, they're kind of just uh, limping along. And so what happens during that time frame? is um, the Assyrians are crippled, the Babylonians are rising, and the Egyptians have now kind of gotten out from under massive control of the Assyrians. And so we see the Egyptians kind of come up and start playing a bit of a a bigger role. The Egyptians in 605 BC, yeah, uh, 605 BC, are going to... Are going to ally with the remaining Assyrians uh, to take on the Babylonians and they just get slaughtered Uh, but what happens a a few years before that as the Egyptians are marching north to go into battle King Josiah decides to meet the Egyptians at Megiddo uh, for a battle and whenever he does this Josiah dies in that battle so if you remember God told Josiah that he would die and he'd be gathered to his fathers before the judgment of Judah was going to occur. So Josiah dies in 609 B.C., and then a few years later in 605 B.C., we have this massive battle of Carchemish where the Egyptians and the Assyrians outnumber the Babylonians two to one. The Babylonians are under the command of King Nebuchadnezzar, who I know we all know a whole lot about, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. And, and they just get destroyed. Babylonians destroy them. And at this point in time, after this battle, there is really, the Assyrians are no longer an in independent power, and the Egyptians are not a significant force in the Near East at all. And so for any of you guys who studied the book of Jeremiah, um, you're going to see Jeremiah talk about the Egyptian side of this a whole lot. Uh, but I want you to see how the Babylonians came to power. It was a slow growth, and then there was a couple of key epic battles while the Assyrians were going through succession issues and financial issues. And all of a sudden, the Babylonians are taking complete control. And so we're getting to this time frame right here. So we're at the end of Josiah's life. Uh, We see Assyria falling. We see the Babylonians rising and really just running rampant all through the, the area. There's warfare and violence everywhere. Uh, Josiah, who is a good king, gets killed in battle, and then all these guys, all these kings after him fall in very quick succession, and you can just see everything crumbling before you. If you go back to 2 Kings, um, if you go back to 2 Kings, I want you to, to look real quick in chapter 23, verse 28 or 29. It says that Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet with him, and that Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. And Megiddo, just for reference, is, is the place where we get the reference of uh, Armageddon, right? So it's this massive, epic battlefield. If you've ever been to Megiddo, it sits up really high, and you see this beautiful flat valley underneath you, and you can probably tell there's thousands upon thousands of battles that have been fought in that valley. So that's where Josiah dies. And then uh, in verse 32, we see that, uh, that his son, uh, Jehoahaz, uh, begins to reign, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it says in verse 34 that Pharaoh Necho made his son king, uh, or made Elikim the son of Josiah, king in the place, and he changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and came to Egypt, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh. And we see all these things happen. And it ends with Jehoiakim in verse 37 It says, And he did what was evil inside the Lord, according to all his fathers had done. And so... Here, these guys have, have, have lost all control. Everything, everything is going south for the kingdom of Judah. And I want you to see here real quick, this map, the, the pink here shows the extent of the Assyrian Empire around 650 B.C. And then the green shows you what all the Babylonians took over by 562 B.C. So within 100 years, how the Assyrians had gone from this massive power to pretty much all the core territories had been taken over by the Babylonians, including all of Israel, right? Uh, The Babylonians will eventually come in, uh, destroy everything, take all the people or take lots of the people of Judah back to Babylon, we'll get our story of Daniel, we'll get the exile and all that occurring. But what the... um, But what's happening right now is Habakkuk is talking to God somewhere in this time frame towards the end of Josiah's life, uh, in the midst of all these bad kings who are falling one after another, Uh, the the Assyrians are over, the Babylonians are rising up, the Babylonians are scary, they've got all this modern technology, they're defeating everybody in their path, violence is all around, all of the kings of Israel have led the people to immorality, there's idol worship occurring. Um, the people of God who are meant to be faithful throughout anything are not being faithful. And and we see that time and time again in all of these prophets. If you read Ezekiel and you read Jeremiah and you read what they are doing as they're going to the people and talking about repentance, uh, we see just utter failure after failure um, within the people. And so all that gets us to where we're going to end today And we're going to end by just reading the first four verses of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, there are two complaints that Habakkuk makes to God. This is the first complaint. Uh, And after each complaint, God answers Habakkuk. And so I want to read this to you. And we're not going to get into the depths of this. But I want you to, uh, before we got into Habakkuk, I want you to understand why he is feeling the way he is. He is seeing violence and destruction, idol worship, everything all around him. So not only are the foreign powers evil, but he's also seeing evil within the midst of the people of Judah. And so it says this, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk is making a very, very uh, major complaint to God. And what i want you guys to to do between now and next week if i could give you a homework assignment is i want you to read this complaint a few times Uh, and i want you to try to put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of habakkuk and try to understand why it is he's complaining and and like any of us when horrible things happen all around us our perspective tends to change you know as, as you deal with grief and mourning and fear your worldview begins to shrink and 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 things can get distorted in your own mind. Habakkuk has a very clear view of what he thinks ought to be happening right now, and he's really challenging God with this complaint that God is not doing what he ought to be doing. And so I want you to read through, read through this, try to get an understanding of it. But I also want you to pick out where do you see that Habakkuk has a bad understanding of who God is based on the nature of this complaint. And we'll start our lesson next week by really talking about that theme. Uh, In the midst of the fear and the uncertainty and the panic that we have all around us, do we begin to misunderstand who God is? And uh, we'll we'll, we'll start with that. Uh, But like any, um, you know, if, if I really think about this, you know, we tend to get negative and get downtrodden and start to complain and start to get bitter anytime bad things happen. Uh, If any of you guys have been on a sports team, uh, you know, there's lots of high fives and camaraderie and cheering and encouragement whenever the team is winning. Uh, But when the team is losing, uh, things come through really quick. Uh, People get bitter, people get resentful, uh, people start griping at each other. And and I want you to think about the back being on a horrific losing team right now. Uh, he really feels like he's on like the Cleveland Browns uh, of the, maybe that's probably bad. I probably got some Baker Mayfield t- fans on here who might want to kill me at the moment. I can, I can probably go with a better example of that, but you know, you just, you think about this as historically bad team and just lots and lots and lots of bad things are happening to him. So he's making this complaint to God and we'll kind of talk through uh, where we see that his complaint is showing us something that's right about God and something that's wrong about God. Any questions for you guys, though, before uh, you guys have your homework for the, for, the, for the week? You'll have to unmute yourself, I believe. Well done, Blake. Yeah, well done. Good. I do all I can to teach history and not the Bible, but, uh, but I did think this was necessary to, to make sure you guys were in the right frame of mind with the right historical context. Before we got into Habakkuk. He's not just a complaining guy. He's got some legitimate beef, uh, and the great thing is, if you decide to read on Habakkuk a little bit, God doesn't listen to Habakkuk's complaint and say, you know, why, why are you bringing this to me, you know, and smite him or something. He, he listens to his complaint, and he responds to him. The thing we're going to find, though, is God does not respond in the way Habakkuk wants him to respond. Uh, so we'll, we'll pick up on that theme as we get into next week, but, uh, I appreciate you guys feel free to hang out for a little bit and, uh, we'll be on same time, same place next week.